0: We've entitled this morning's message, A Sibling Challenge. As we come to Act, uh, excuse me, John chapter 7 this morning, uh, having at least completed uh, our exposition through chapter 6, I want to give you the timing and the setting as to what's going on <clears throat> here with our, our scriptures right now. If you go back to chapter 5 verse 1 for a moment so we can see it. In chapter 5 in verse 1 we said we see this and these things were uh, these things there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So in chapter 5 he was in Jerusalem. Go with me to chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. After these things Jesus went away to the other side of the sea of Galilee or Tiberius. And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So in chapter 6, we see that he's moved from Jerusalem to Galilee, and there he was at the feast of the Passover. To put it in perspective, that would have been the equivalent, though the Jewish months are are numbered differently and so forth. If you think in terms of where we live, it would have been in relationship to the month of April, approximately. So, April of the year. And during that time, in chapter 6, a lot has taken place. And what we have seen together is that two signs or miracles took place there in Galilee. At this particular time, recorded by John anyway, and that is one, the feeding of the 5,000, and then secondly, his walking on the water. That was then preceded by a very lengthy conversation in which we have been involved for several months, actually, in expounding the passage, where he was involved with, number one, where he came from. Where did he come from? Heaven. He came from the Father. Jesus Christ came specifically from the Father. And then secondly, it centered on... Who he is, who the person of Christ is, who the person Jesus is. And that is, specifically, he is the bread of life. And the conversation centered around that. The bottom line, what he was pointing out in chapter 6, is Jesus Christ, my friend, is the Messiah of God. He's the one sent. He's the promised one of the Old Testament. And in dealing with the bread of life, he is, number one, the giver of life, not only physical life, but spiritual life. He is also the sustainer, as we think of food and and, and sustaining our life. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Not only gives life, but he sustains life. And he is the one who has provided physical life for you. And the only way that you will ever have spiritual life, life with God, forgiveness of sins, is to indeed believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will, as we saw in chapter 6, to take him in to, as we would, eating bread, to take in all that Jesus Christ represents as the Father's sacrifice for sin, substitutionary sacrifice for us. And so that has all been involved in chapter 6. As we come to chapter 7 now, you'll notice from verse 1 and 2, particularly verse 2, we are now at the Feast of Booths. This is also known to some of you That may be a little strange. Many of you may know what that is. Excuse me. But the Feast of Boots is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It is also known as the Feast of the Ingathering. And that can actually help us with understanding it. And actually, chapter 7 and chapter 8 of John, that is the setting. We are dealing with the Feast of Boots for the next two chapters. So that you're aware of it. It is a seven day feast that goes on. And to put it in perspective for you, we are now in the month, interestingly enough, of what we know as October. That's the month we happen to be in right now. But so when we're working with the Feast of Boots, we're in the month now of October. Now, what was involved with this feast? I will turn to one passage and not more than one, though I have them in my notes. Let me tell you this that the Feast of Boots was a celebration. It was a commemoration as well. There was a big celebration that went on, and it's primarily in three areas. And though I have the text in front of me, I'll only turn to one that's going to show you one of the purposes, just to save a little time. Pardon me. There is not sickness. It's just I'm having trouble clearing my throat this morning. Uh, But number one, excuse me, is it was a time of thanksgiving. This feast was involved to give thanks to God at harvest time because of God's provision for food. It was also a time of celebration, number two, because of God's provision for his people during the wilderness wanderings in which they dwelt in, and this is important, tents or tabernacles, if you will. Okay, Or they dwelt in grass huts and so forth as they went through the wilderness wandering and it would commemorate that and thirdly and very important it was that God tabernacled among them when he was with them he traveled by and was identified with the people as you know by a cloud and by fire but during those wilderness wanderings it reminded them of God's provision for them of God's protection in housing And then most importantly, that God was in their presence with them. And their celebration of booths, their celebration of tabernacles, was vital to their celebration. In fact, go with me to the one I will turn to. is Go to Leviticus 23 for just a moment. Keep your finger in John. We'll come right back. There's a number of Old Testament references. Deuteronomy has some. But let's just, for one reference, the 15th of the 7th month, is the Feast of Boots. This is where it comes from. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops, see, that's why it's in other places, in gathering and so forth, gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate, there it is, the Feast of the Lord, seven days, with the rest of the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall, and this is important, take to yourselves the foliage of beauty, trees, palm branches, Bows of leafy trees. Boy, we got plenty of that right now. And willows of brooks. And you shall rejoice before the Lord for that seven days. Verse 41, and you shall thus celebrate it with the feast of the Lord seven days. It shall be a perpetual statue. Verse 42, you shall live in boots for seven days. And so forth. That your generations, verse 43, might know that I had the sons of Israel live in boots when they brought them out of the land of Egypt. So you got actually two of them there. One is because of the ingathering of the crops. Secondly, because they dwelt in huts, as I said. And you will find if you compare it with other passages, that the third one is that God was in their midst. So they were to do this, and they still carry that on today. It's a very important thing in which, even in Israel, if you're there during that time, they build these grass huts, and they bring out trees and everything else. And they, many families stay in them. Some stay in tents and so forth, but that's the whole purpose. It really brings, go back to John, out the significance of something we already studied. Go with me to John chapter 1 just for one moment. This is a very commonly quoted passage. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Help me out, you probably know the verse. And he did what? Dwelt among us. And that literally is, he could be translated, let me put it that way. He could be translated, he tabernacled. He dwelt in a booth, if you will, among us. That's really stretching it a little bit. But the concept is that, that God's presence. And so we need to understand, when Jesus Christ came to earth, he tabernacled among men. He came into the midst, and that was very important to the mind of the Jew, that God was in their presence. And you see, as we talk about Jesus Christ and salvation, That's really what happened. God left his glory above because he loved us, as we've been talking about love, so much that he took on flesh and tabernacled among us. He came in our midst with a purpose, and that purpose was to die as a sacrifice for sin and to give us life, as we've been talking about eternal life. And that's why he is the only way. That's why a person must come to trust in him. It was God in our midst. Very significant. So as we go back to John chapter 7 now, since we're in the Feast of Boots, verse 2, what we find is a six-month gap. You see, you and I move from chapter 6, verse 71 into chapter 7, verse 1, and sometimes we think, well, it just happened next. No. Six months has transpired. We've gone from April to October, if you think of our months. And I'll keep it in our months. So about a six-month gap has taken place. And It's important to us because what is going on is we see it's just snapshots because John is trying to give us information. So chapter 7 is vital. You might bounce through the beginning of chapter 7, even the first nine verses, and say there's nothing significant. It's very significant because John wanted this in there so we see it. It's very important in his presentation of Jesus as the Messiah. Another thing we need to realize as we come to chapter 7 is not only is there a six-month gap, but also the hostility is growing toward Christ. Follow with me just in John. Go to John chapter 5 verse 18. And this you've already seen. In John chapter 5 verse 18. For this cause therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he said he was equal to God and plus he healed on the Sabbath. See? It's beginning to build. Chapter 6 where we have just been. You might recall as we were closing the chapter. In verse 60, I'll just go down there. Many, therefore, of his disciples, we talked about that last week, when they heard this said, this is difficult. What did it result in? Verse 61. Does this cause you to stumble? What happened? Verse 66 last week. The result was, of this was many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So his popularity is decreasing. In chapter 7, verse 1, what do we find? The end of verse 1. The Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 44, same chapter. Look at it. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. This is still during the Feast of Booths. Go with me to chapter 8. Still the Feast of Booths that we're going to be talking about. Go to verse 40 just for a second. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. This is going to help us in understanding chapter 7. You're seeking to kill me. A man who has watched this told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. That was kill him. And look at verse 59. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I hope you can see it. And by the way, it's going to continue throughout the book. But the hostility is building toward Jesus. He's giving them signs. He's demonstrating who he is. And I want you to understand right away. Get this. You might think that by witnessing and telling people the message of salvation, they're going to just love it and put their arms around you. This is wonderful. God might work on a heart for that to happen. But generally, there's resistance to the truth. Generally, you will get resistance to any presentation of the truth of God, especially when you need the gospel. And Jesus Christ was was facing that. So as we come to chapter 7, six months has elapsed. Not only that, but we see that the Jews' hostility is growing, verse 1. And where do we find him? We still find him up around the Sea of Galilee. And remember that he was born in Nazareth, which is up in that area. And in John chapter 2, we saw that he did what? He performed the miracle in Cana of Galilee. So he's been ministering in that area. And that brings us to verses 3 and 4. So in verses 1 and 2, he was unwilling to go to Judea. Why? He tells you why, because the Jews wanted to kill him. The hostility has grown, and it's grown strong. Now we come to examining priorities in verses 3 and 4. And you notice that it says in verse 3, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea. Why? That your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And I'll stop right there. First of all, we have this term, his brothers. Okay. And this is a common word that is sometimes translated brethren. In this case, it's translated brothers. Who's he talking about? Let me give you the understanding that, first of all, this word is translated, it's a very common word in our New Testament. It is translated and used in the context in relationship to fellow countrymen. It is used in a context, in some cases, just to understand neighbors as brethren. It is also used in a context to understand a community brethren but I don't think that's the use here I think that the English translation that I'm looking at is probably the best in this context what is that brothers he's talking about family why do you say that well let me just give you one quick one for set time of for sake of time look at verse 3 alone you notice that he distinguishes his brothers and then that your disciples so he's not talking about just Jewish brethren And he's not talking about those who were, in terms of chapter 6, were, quote-unquote, disciples. It's a different word. So I think he is dealing with, and it's a good translation there, that he's dealing with physical brothers. Did you know that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters? Many do not believe that, and many do not understand that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. So I think it's best that we understand this as his brothers, meaning half-brothers and brothers. Uh, or in, in that case, brothers. But all, he also had sisters. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? Well, Matthew chapter 13 is an example. If you look at verse 55, remember this: Matthew 13:55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is no dis- distinct, no un- misunderstanding. He's talking about Jesus from verse 53. Is not his mother called Mary? And watch, his brothers, well, maybe it's just, no, he names them. James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. That's not Judas Iscariot, by the way, obviously. In verse 56, and his sisters, plural, are they not all with us? And what I'm just trying to point out to you is Jesus Christ had at least four half-brothers and at least... Two sisters, because it's plural. So the concept, it's very important, of Mary remaining a virgin all her life is phony, folks. It is not so. Now, we should have tremendous respect for Mary as his mother. And the Lord did, by the way. But to see her as co redemptress is absolutely out of the question. To, receive, to see her as someone who never, who remained a virgin all her life, is not true to the Word of God. In fact, in Matthew, what it says is they did not have physical relations, Joseph and Mary, until after her first child was born. Why? Because that first child was Jesus, who was born of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of confusion in denominations about that doctrine, but it's very clear here. So when we come to John chapter 6, it's these physical brothers that are talking to him in the sense of half-brothers. And we saw that he's got at least two sisters. I want to say some things that are very important to us today as we talk about sibling challenges so that I'm not misunderstood. Family, first of all, is vital. Families are important. In fact, it is the first unit that you find in Scripture. Is it not? Of course it is. In Genesis chapter 1, I won't turn there, but in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, We see that when God created man in his own image and likeness, he said, be fruitful and multiply. And man was to glorify God by having children and being a family unit. Also, we find that in Genesis chapter 33. We also find a very familiar passage. I won't turn to that one, but it's Psalm 127. Children are a heritage of the Lord. Blessed are those who have children. So children are a blessing from God, folks, and, and it shows God's blessing, and they're good. And so to have, and it says, by the way, a wife. I don't like the word thing there because it's too often misrepresented. But a wife is a blessing from the Lord. Husbands, you ought to praise God for your wives. And so to have a family relationship and to have children, I want you to see everywhere in Scripture, it's vital. But the one I want you to turn to is Deuteronomy chapter 6 for just a second. Deuteronomy chapter 6 to show you how vital family is. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Right after, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says how important it is to realize that God is the one true Lord in God, verse 4. And we're to love him as we've been singing verse 5. You've got verses 6 and 7. Watch. These words at that time that God had given, yes, by application, the Bible, God's word, which I am commanding, commending to you, shall be on your heart. Father's tremendous responsibility, men. First, it's got to be committed to us. But then watch verse 7. And you shall teach them diligently, to your sons, and you shall talk to them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And so what I'm trying to point out to you, family is vital. And we need to take it serious. All too often, the family has been scattered today. There's so many things that are causing divisions in families because of the pull and pressure, both in the job market, in the career concept, in, in the activities and and so forth, and families are not what they should be. In fact, because of the looseness of the way people interpret Scripture as well, you've got so much divorce, and you've got so much of everything else that not only is the world that way, but in professing Christendom, we got families where there's children that are born of this one and that one and everything, and there's just total confusion in the family. But in God's eyes, it's a unit, and we're to see how important it is. In fact, marriage, and I was reminded of this at a wedding yesterday, Marriage, as uh, uh, the minister pointed out, he referred to Ephesians chapter 5 uh, at the wedding that I was at. And, and in that chapter, marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church and just how precious it is. And we need to understand very clearly how important the family is to God. But I want you to notice a couple of other things. I want you to notice, so I hope you understood clearly what I just said. But I want to say, first of all, beyond that, family is no guarantee of salvation. You got that? Look at verse 5 now. Not even, and I'm not done with verses 3 and 4, in case those who are looking for the exposition think I skipped it o- over it. I haven't. But what I want you to see is this point. For not even his brothers were believing in him. You see, sometimes we think because of family connections, it's a guarantee that we're going to get saved. Because Mary had Jesus was no guarantee that Mary would come to salvation. or a guarantee that Joseph would come to salvation. And just because these were half-brothers and brothers and sisters was no guarantee. Sometimes we think because we're born in a Christian family or we're related to people, or our children are related to us, that's a guarantee of salvation. Not so at all. In fact, turn with me to Mark three. Stay with me. Mark chapter 3. You already saw from chapter 7 verse 5 that they were not believing on him yet. But in Mark chapter 3, very quickly, verse 21, just to put a little bit of context, and when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him for those who were saying, he has lost his senses. I want you to see that. Who is that? That was his family. You know what his family was saying of Jesus? This guy's out of his mind. That's literally what we're dealing with. I mean, again, translation. They're saying he's out of his mind. And if you look down, that's the context of what you've got in verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers arrived standing outside and sent word and called to him. The multitude says, "Your brothers, your mother and brothers are looking for you. Look at verse 33. He answered and said, Who are my mother and brother? And looking about those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whosoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And what I'm pointing out to you is there's a relationship that is far more important, as important as the family is. Don't lose that. The relationship with Christ is what brings us into a proper relationship in the sense of mother, brother, sister, and so forth. That's why anyone that belongs to the body of Christ is truly a brother or sister in the Lord, which is a more important relationship than even your own physical family. And too many people don't get that one. We're dealing with salvation. Salvation is personal. Let me say this already. There are some who will not want to come to Christ because they're afraid of what their mother or father or brother or sister is going to think. There are some who will not follow Christ because of family. As important as the family is, and it's vital, it's not as important as your relationship with God. That is number one. And there are too many, even Christians, who have not got a grasp on that. You need to follow the Lord and pray for others for salvation or whatever, as we'll see. Now, to go back to chapter 7, because time is fleeting here. In chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, so I properly treat the exposition of that, let me say this, I don't think this suggestion was really that bad. Why? He's with his brothers and sisters. While I do think because of verse 5, which gives us the reason for what they said, I think there's some sarcasm in it. It's really not that bad advice. Why? What is being said is this. We know, as I've already shown you, Jesus has lost his popularity. Many disciples have just left him. He's now been six more months up in the Galilean area. And there's a big feast that's happening. And his own brothers have observed that his popularity is decreasing. They don't believe what he said. They think he's out of his mind, which is why, again, they're still not believing. And what happens is they basically challenge him. If you are the Messiah, it doesn't say those words, but that's what it means. He says to the disciples, "Behold, you, let them behold your works. Depart from here. Go to Judea. If you are who you say you are, verse 4, for no one does anything in secret if he seeks to be known publicly. If you are really the Messiah and you want to be known as the Messiah publicly, then go to a public place. What public place? I thought he was in a public place. Yes, but Jerusalem is the center. And not only that, the prophecies concerning the Messiah center in Jerusalem. And so the thinking behind his brothers are, You're losing your popularity. Though we know from Scripture, because it says it, we don't believe you are who you say you are. We think you're out of your mind. But if that's really true, well, then why don't you go where the crowd is? Why don't you do that? Doesn't it make sense? Of course it does, from a human perspective. Go where the popularity is. Let it be known who you really are. He's being challenged by his own family. But they were not believers. What happens, let me ask you a question and get right to it. What happens to you? Answer this for yourself. When a fellow family member puts pressure on you to make a choice between what the Word of God says and what they want you to do. That's practical, folks. Everyone in this room faces that everyone. What will you do? Sitting here today, I believe that all of us would want to say, I'll follow God, and I'll get scriptural support for it. Rightly divided? Rightly divided? When it comes down to a choice between God and children, God and your spouse, God and your family members, do you really choose God first? How about when it comes to the gospel? How about when it comes to the gospel? How about when it comes to making a a stand regarding doctrine? How about when it comes to making a stand regarding lifestyle of the world, a lifestyle that follows after God? How about social events? How about theological situations? Those are real. I know because you folks share with me and I've been through it we lost isolation with family members for years who would have nothing to do with our children because of issues that I took stands on around Christmas time it's a fact I have had to take stands in my own family with my own children are you ready to take stands You see, when it comes to family, we think all of a sudden, you know, the family, not beyond the relationship with God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. How much do I love you, Lord? How much will I obey? Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 to 38, which I won't read at all. Let me highlight some things here, though. Verse 28, you'll be familiar, and you'll cringe when you see the passage, I'm sure. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. It's an interesting context here, by the way. Okay, but rather fear him. He's sending his disciples forward, by the way. And then he shows about his care. Do not two sparrows to the soul for scent. They fall to the ground. Your father knows. The hairs of your head are numbered, getting fewer with some of us, verse 30. And then what happens, aren't you more of value? Of course I am. And then he says, everyone therefore who confesses me before men, verse 32, I will confess. But who denies me, I will deny him. Now watch verse 34. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. Watch verse 35. Wow. Wow. I came to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a mother uh, excuse me a man's enemies will be members of his own household he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me he who loves son Or daughter, more than me, is not worthy of me. You can't get a more specific challenge to the very nature of our being. By God's grace, I have five children and seven grandchildren. And I have a wife that I love and I praise God for, as well as I praise God for those grandchildren and and children. And they mean so much because they're part of my life. But if my love for God is not greater than that, I am not worthy either, even of salvation. And primarily, that's the key when we're dealing with salvation. And listen, I'll tell you in a nutshell right now there are some that are so worried about coming to Christ because they're worried about what their family's going to think. You'll find in Scripture it works just the reverse. By you taking a stand and coming to Christ, and sometimes even after your death, that's when they come to Christ because you've been faithful to God. And God answers your prayers. And sometimes when you have to take stands, it's because you're true to the word of God with all the criticism that may come. But you stand true, that they'll recognize the difference. And later on, God will use it. I'll give you some passages. You put yourself to the test whether you're even going to look them up. They're all centered on the gospel, by the way, so I understand the context and you do. Acts chapter 4, verses 17 and 19. They were told not to preach in the name of Christ. Here was the response. You tell me whether it's right to do what God said or whether it's right to do what you say. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, centered on the gospel. If you seek the favor of men you will not please God. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Same thing. If you seek to please men, you will not please your father. Tough? Yes. We need to hate our families now, Pastor Dan? Is that what you're saying? Of course not. That's not what God meant at all. We ought to love our families, and they should be top priority, second. What? Yeah, second second only to God, which means you will follow God. Will you love God with all your heart so that you will follow him and the obedience of his word regardless of what your spouse thinks, regardless of what your children think, regardless of how you might be isolated from your in-laws, regardless of what? That's where the rubber meets the road. And it's practical. It's practical. Many times people resist Christ because of their family. They make decisions to follow family rather than Christ. But as I already said to you, the truth is many times when you follow Christ, you will find later on God will bring about that which you really want and that salvation or a turnaround in a child's life or in a relative's life. But he's waiting to see whether you'll follow. Are you willing to be cast into the lion's den? Are you willing to walk into the fire? Are you willing to not bow down to the gods of this world? Are you willing not to give in when you know in your conscience it's wrong? Are you going to give in to what your family pressure is? It's a test of whether you really know God. It's a test of whether you really will follow him. They were saying go publicly, not a bad thing, but they weren't saved. Let me get to God's timing because I want to encourage you on something as well. God's timing is seen in verses 6 through 9. What is it? First of all, Jesus therefore said to them, My time. It's interesting the word he uses here. Kairos. Okay, he didn't say my hour. By the way, his hour is specifically referring to the cross of Calvary. We know that. You'll see that again in John. But he's dealing with the, the concept of his opportunity. His occasion. I think that's what's behind this. The Lord Jesus Christ saw that he was on the plan of God, not on the plan of even his siblings. That's what he's dealing with. He says, for the opportunity, my opportunity, not his hour of the crucifixion, but his timing. If you want to cross-reference right out of John, think of John chapter 2, verse 4. Remember his mother? Okay? His mother wanted, said to the soldiers, you know, do what he, you know they haven't got wine and so forth. It's not my time right now. That immediate thing. That wasn't the opportunity for him. Same, same concept here. He resisted the family pressure. In this case, the pressure of his brothers. To go and put himself on display. Let me help you out, by the way. In about six more months, Jesus will be put publicly on display. You know where? On the cross. Six more months from this incident. He's been about a year and a half since he's been in Jerusalem, by the way, with those gaps where we went up for the Passover and everything else. But in about six more months, that's all he's got between this and the cross. But this was not the time for the cross, and it was not the time for him to go to Judea. Why? He knew, verse 1, the resistance of wanting to kill him and so forth. And so he points this out. He says, my time is not yet at hand. The opportunity or the occasion for me is not right now. That's all he's saying. But your time is always opportune. Now, what does he mean by that? He's not dealing with death. He's not dealing, Some I had that concept, I used to have that concept of the scripture, that what he's dealing with here. You know, I'm not going to die now, you can die any time. It's not what he's really dealing with at all. Neither is he dealing with salvation. He's not really saying, you know, my time is not now, but your time for the day of salvation is right now. That's not the context either. He's talking about the time to go up to Jerusalem. And he explains that in the text. He basically says, your time is always opportunity. Why? Because there's no opposition to them. Because there's no pressure on them. Thirdly, because there's no messianic plan for them that Christ has. How do you know that? He explains it in verse 7. The world cannot hate you. The reason you can go up right now is the world doesn't hate you. But it does hate me. See, he won't go up there right now because of the hatred that he knew. And he knew... That he was in God's timing and God's plan, not their plan. This is not my time to go out publicly. I can do that. But you are thinking like the world that is his brother's. My plan, if you think about Galatians, for example, chapter 4, that deals with actually his coming and his uh, sacrifice. That in God's perfect timing, he came. He came into this world in God's perfect timing. He redeemed man in God's perfect timing. And he will even go up to Jerusalem in God's timing, not the timing of man. The reason they could go up is there was no opposition. And he would testify of it that his deeds are evil. Let me pause for a little application. Anytime, whether it be the presentation of the gospel, whether it be a social event, whether it be a challenge to your family, immediate or extended, where you have to draw the line and testify of sin or error, You will not be liked. In fact, that's mild. You will be hated. And the choice is yours. Every single one of us in this room. And you will answer for it as I will. Before the Lord. The world loves their own. In fact, go to chapter 15 for a second. Chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 19. We're almost done. If you are of the world, is that dealing with a disciple's relationship and this fact of knowing God? Of course it is. Of course it is. But I'm giving you also application here. The world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, talking about believers, there's a choice again, by the way. Therefore, the world hates you. You see, when you belong to Christ, the world hates you. If the world loves you, something's wrong. But you say, this is family. Yes, unbelieving family. That's why there's conflict in a family. That's why in a marriage relationship, you don't join with an unbeliever. Now, if you're in that situation, you stay in it, 1 Corinthians, because God will use your testimony. But listen, young people, even if you get the advice from an adult that says it's okay to marry an unbeliever, show me in Scripture. I'll show you when God allows it, but you shouldn't go into it willingly. I'll show you a scripture that says that. Okay, you shouldn't do that. But sometimes because of family, even parents won't take a stand on that one. Sometimes because of family relationships, parents won't go any further with anything. The world loves its own. It doesn't hate. The world hates righteousness. It says in in chapter 7, go back there, that the reason they hated him is because he testified he exposed their evil deeds what is their evil deeds their programs their value system their plans their outright explicit sin and when you expose that folks you will expect to be hated you will the world resists believers Don't be surprised. You know, we're living in a real world here. And sometimes we say, oh, that we could just change the social environment. Look, that's all that's going on, and the government's changed. God's still in control of the government, He's still in control of leaders. Do you expect uh, that the Congress, for example, and the leadership is going to love? us taking stands and talking about issues of the day and saying, we need to draw the line here regarding marriage. We need to draw the line here. The world's going to hate you. No wonder it isolates Christians. No wonder it attacks Christians because you're taking stands. But if you don't, the world will love you. You see, we ought not to be surprised. The world loves unbelievers. It accepts its own. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we know how to draw the lines and that we are willing to follow God. There's a test before we close today for all of us to examine. I sing, I love you, Lord. I say, I love you, Lord. Am I willing to obey if it costs me someone in my family? Am I willing to obey? You say, Pastor Dan, you got it all mixed up. I don't think so. Not when the Lord himself would even say to his parents, didn't you know? I have to be about my father's opportunity, or my father's plan, or as it was translated here, whether that's the best or not, in the house, Okay, in our responsive reading. Don't you know that my real brothers and sisters are those who have a more important relationship? Did he hate his mother? Of course not. He loved his mother. He took care of his mother in his death. He loved his brothers. He loved his sisters. But he would not cross the line when it interfered with the almighty plan of God. And in his case, messiahship, yes. And in the case of the apostles, in the case of the Old Testament prophets, though they would be thrown in dungeons, in a pit, be sawed in half, be isolated and have to leave their family, Abraham, where it started, by the way, he would do it if it meant following God. True test of how much we love God. You know, when you get to heaven, and I wish we got this in our mind, there's no more father, mother, husband, wife, brother, sister. Think about that. Oh, I hope they're there. But it's only your relationship with God and all the other saints. God makes that very clear in Matthew. Once we get to heaven... It's no longer that. That's why we sometimes cling to that. If my, par- my parents aren't there, my grandparents aren't there, my kids aren't there, I don't want to be in heaven. You're just exposed where you are. By the way, two more things before I close. One, just to be fair to the text, in verse 18 he says, Go up to the feast yourselves. Why? You can go. They're not going to hate you. I don't go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. His time had not yet come. That is to this opportunity to present himself publicly. There is a, a variant, by the way, as to whether it's go up or go up yet. I believe both translations could be accepted and there's enough, enough evidence with both of them to really know what was there. I don't think it affects it at all because the Lord Jesus Christ will go up shortly. It just emphasized the fact I'm not going up right now, but I'll be going up in a little bit. But what I want you to go away with is on God's perfect timing, is when you follow God's plan and trust God, you'll see what he does. What do you mean? Who is he talking to, his brothers and his sisters, or at least his brothers here, I should say? Well, we have some of the evidence of what happened later. His brothers did not believe on him in verse 5, right? I haven't got the time to turn there, but you can in Acts chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What we do know from Scripture Is apparently they came to know the Lord. When? After his resurrection. After the Lord Jesus Christ had died. We know that certainly of James and Jude. Do you know that God used two of his half brothers to pen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the books that you and I love, James and Jude, who said, earnestly contend for the faith? And by the way, out of the mouths of their own mouths in both books, who referred to Jesus Christ as their Lord, who at this time thought he was out of his mind. But later on, after his death and resurrection, came to trust him as Savior, came to know him because Christ continued to follow God's plan rather than giving in to even the pressures of siblings. And we don't know about the other two brothers. There is tradition. I've read a little bit, but we don't know scripturally. But the tradition holds that all four of them did come to know Christ. And one of them in particular is some references to some things that happened in the individual's life. But it's in God's timing. Your children, your relatives, let it be God's timing. Don't ever give up praying. Don't ever give up being a witness. You are a, a living epistle, read of all men. People may hate you, they may not like you, they may talk about you, but if you follow Christ, the epistle will be wearing off in their hearts and God will use your life in your family. Love your family with all your heart, but never choose family over God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in God, these things are tough. I know they're tough in my own heart. But yet, Father, we know that while you were speaking with statements that we can understand that are exaggerating in a sense that we are hate our mother and father and brothers, it's in relationship to our love for you. But, Father, greater love has no one had but the love that we find in Jesus Christ and laying down his life for us. I don't know who in this room have not yet come to Christ and they're still doubting like the Lord's brothers were. But, Father, help them to see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, sent of God, his perfect timing, perfect plan followed, regardless of who would go along with it. And he could not be swayed from following that which you had in his life. And, Father, we all praise God because of that, who know you. But help us. Father, it's tough. It's tough when we have challenges that come our way in very practical situations that deal with family whom we dearly love. Help us never to put them above you. We know, Father, it's not your mind to disrupt families, but, Father, your timing sometimes is for some of them to come to know the Lord or to follow the Lord later. Help us to be true individually. Help us to seek to please you above all rather than pleasing men, and to trust you with the results. We thank you and praise you for the challenges to our heart and pray, Father, that we would see that in our lives and see many come to Christ, not only because of what we say, but because of what we do and how we live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.